0: Listener production. Hello, my name is Jamila Risby, and welcome to this special series of the Weekend Briefing, where I talk to some of my favourite guests, old and new, about a single fascinating subject. Over the next two months, you'll hear from singers, writers, models, actors, and changemakers on topics as diverse as the interview subjects themselves. Today you'll be hearing from Ellie Marchelier on Access. Ellie is a disability rights advocate who is determined to make change for the one in five Australians who live with disability. In this special episode, Ellie explains how people with disabilities are left out of important conversations, the experience of being denied access to places and spaces that matter and why the NDIS can't be the answer to every medical funding challenge. Ellie DiMarshelia, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much for having me. I am so happy to have you. In fact, I was stalking you on the social medias just before uh, we jumped on. Oh, bless. On, Love a stalker. <laughs> just before <laughs> we jumped on to have this conversation. And you had the loveliest, sweetest, most excellent interaction with a kid yesterday. Can you Can you tell everyone about it?
1: The amount of times I have been asked why I'm in a wheelchair by kids, by adults, by anyone, and this is the best response I've ever had to that question. So this little girl, I was waiting for a medical appointment, sitting in the waiting room, and this little girl instantly loved my wheelchair, and she goes, why are you in a wheelchair? Did you break a leg? And I went, no, I didn't break a leg. I have cerebral palsy. And she went, what's that? And I said, "Uh, my brain was damaged when I was born. And that means the messages don't go from my brain to my legs in the right way. And she went, does that mean you're wobbly on your feet? And I went, yeah, it does. That means I'm wobbly on my feet. And she went, does that mean you're an astronaut? And I just, oh, like my, like that's yes. where she went to. I, I, I was like, no, I'm not an astronaut. And I said, do you want to be an astronaut? And she was like, yes, I want to float. But I don't like the look of those suits. And I just cracked up laughing this little kid. Like she just thought that because I was wobbly on my feet, I got to be an astronaut. If only like everyone thought disabilities meant you got cool jobs. We'd start out right, wouldn't we?
0: What kind of response do you give when you're asked that question by an adult? Look, it it depends. It depends
1: on the way it's asked and the intention behind it, the thought behind it. It depends on my mood and my energy levels. Sometimes I will say do you ask everybody about their medical history um but sometimes I will just go I have cerebral palsy which I've had since birth I don't think there's any shame or anything wrong with having cerebral palsy so I don't feel anything bad about telling people about that, even though it is rude to ask people about their medical history. Um, If it's asked in a genuine kind way in a conversation, um, you know, sometimes it's better to fight other fights than that one. But if it's asked in a way which is like, what's wrong with you? Um, You know, then I'll kind of fight back with, you know, I don't know, what's from wrong with your hair loss? Like, you know, like <laughs> it's just uh, sometimes people are so um, unaware of how just thoughtless their questions come across to, to people and they're just so in their own world wanting, uh, just thinking they're entitled to this knowledge of people's medical information and, um, but yeah, it really depends on whether I could be bothered having the fight or whether I think there's some good intention behind the question.
0: You and I are both disabled, but we have had quite different experiences of disability in our, in our lives. This has been something for you that's played yeah. a role in your existence since birth. Whereas for me, it's a relatively, I'm very old, everyone, relatively new experience. <laughs> and- also, when I am moving about my life in the city or at the supermarket or whatever because my disability is invisible to the people around me unless something is going wrong mm-hmm. I don't get called on to explain myself whereas yeah, I feel like for you does it sometimes seem as if people notice the wheelchair before they notice the person who's using it?
1: Oh, completely. Completely. People notice the wheelchair before they see the person every single time. And look, I think there are pros and cons to both. There are you know, the fact that people with invisible disabilities don't get the recognition they need in order to get the supports that they need, like, that's really hard, you know, the fact that you have to advocate for yourself to get the seat for people with disabilities on trains and buses and people are like, well, you don't look very disabled, Um, you know, like, that's hard for them, but there's, you know, no one has it easier or harder than anyone else. There's no competition in disability land. But I struggle with the idea that particularly, you know, you're at a shopping centre or you're in a crowd and you're just completely invisible to as a person to anyone. And you're just something that's in the way. And I, I just am like completely aware that nobody is seeing me for me. And that's quite um, – it's hard to explain. I had the experience on the weekend where I went to see the Barbie movie with my mum and um, on the way out of the cinema they had one of the chair lifts that you get in and the arms come down and then they it takes you down the stairs. Yeah. And at the bottom the arms didn't come back up to let me out. It got mm. stuck halfway up. And I got stuck in this chairlift for 35 minutes while all the cinema staff ran around trying to work out how to get me out of this chairlift, right? And I'm sitting there in my, like, full-on pink outfit, bright as can be, like, having just loved the Barbie movie. And all the cinema staff were apologising to my mum and my friend, going, I'm so sorry, we're inconvenient to you. And and my mum was like wait what about the person in that's stuck like tell her that like you're inconveniencing her and it was so interesting none of them could look at me or like acknowledge that it was me that was stuck in the chairlift like everyone was speaking to my mum and the friend it was uh, it was a very interesting experience and um I was just a thing that was being transported, and they were the people that were being inconvenienced. It was really interesting, and I, I felt so uncomfortable, but couldn't really put a finger on why. Um, but it was because I was not being seen
0: as a human. Um, it was really interesting. You were very generous to call it interesting. I, I'm so sorry that I'm so sorry that happened to you. I I sort of think about that situation and how often, even in uh, public places where disability has been considered and there is infrastructure or technology there to support someone who's disabled to be able to access, in this case, entertainment, that even when that exists, often the upkeep isn't there to make the access possible. And then the response to it is, oh, we have to deal with this person who has created a problem as opposed Hmm. to we have created a problem because we're not keeping things that are part of our service functional.
1: Correct and it was so interesting everyone was running around going "Oh, only Nathan knows how to use this and Nathan's left for the day what are we going to do like it wasn't a part of mainstream training for all the staff there it was like a specialty thing that one manager knew what to do someone called this Nathan guy um, as they were standing next to me and said like I've got a girl stuck in the chairlift Mm. and Nathan said I'm busy I'll call you back in 15 minutes and I thought what are you doing that's so important that a girl stuck in a chairlift halfway down the stairs isn't like an emergency enough where you're gonna like do something about it I just thought like what are you doing that's so important um that 15 minutes you know like that's a long time to be stuck halfway down a flight of stairs anyway uh apparently he apparently was driving I thought oh, there is the ability to pull over um anyway it was just a really interesting example of the infrastructure was there but no one actually thought anyone was going to use it yeah like it was just there because they were supposed to have it but no one was like everyone was surprised someone was there to use it mm. and no one knew how to use it Mm. um so it's a good example of like you can put in really accessible things but if you actually don't have the culture of inclusion if you don't have a culture of welcoming people with disability if you don't have a culture of expecting people with disability then you can build all the ramps and lifts and accessible things in the world, but they're actually, it's not going to be an inclusive place or a welcoming place for people with disability.
0: What was it like for you as a kid when you're growing up in a world where I am imagining you're constantly coming up against people or practices or places that are not built with you in mind or are not behaving with your needs in mind, but you're a child who doesn't have an adult sense of reason and how the world works and what discrimination means. Like, how did you sort through that as in your kid brain, uh, that experience of not being supported the way other people were?
1: Well, my kid brain had a very strong sense. And this might be because I have ADHD and autism, and this is a very strong part of Having ADHD and autism is my kid brain had a very strong sense of justice and injustice, what was right and what was wrong. And if there was injustice, I was not okay with it. I knew that it was not okay. And I was a pretty stubborn little kid and I knew I, I had, they tested me for all these different. Um, skills when I was in about grade two to see if I needed um, different learning supports. And they found that I, in grade two, had the communication skills of a 16-year-old.
0: You never had a kid brain. You were just an adult from the beginning.
1: No, I had the non-verbal skills of an 18 month old. So there's the autism. Yeah. But I had the verbal skills of a 16 year old in grade two. So I was able to communicate with adults and say, I can't do this, but I want to do this. Help me to do this. I didn't really take no for an answer. The things I couldn't do, you know, climb equipment, go on long walks, like they're not inherently things that Ellie without a disability would want to do anyway. Like people used to say to me, I remember like, oh, I feel so sorry for you that you can't go on a hike. And I used to think like, Even if I didn't have cerebral palsy, you would not find me going for a hike. Like, that is not me. Like, I'm not a hike girl. I am uh, watching the news, reading a book. Yeah, That is who I am.
0: All these people have overestimated the role that hiking plays in one's adult life. Often it's very small, if not zero. Correct,
1: and felt very a lot of pity for me about missing out on hiking. When I felt very little sadness about missing out on hiking, the things that I felt sad about missing out on were. Friendships because yeah. you know, young kids uh, thought for example that cerebral palsy was contagious at one point in grade one and would run away from me as soon as they got close because they thought they'd catch it. Um, you know, friendships that I found really hard to make in early high school because I didn't know I had autism and I had um you know, rejection sensitivity, dysphoria. And like I was taking rejection really seriously, which in a high school you get rejected all the time. Like those were the things that I was missing out on that I was really, really difficult, not hiking or climbing playground equipment or they'd spent hundreds of thousands of dollars putting in an accessible swing. And I was like, I never really wanted to go on the swings. Like, I just I want to be able to go into every classroom. I want to be able to meet everyone and be involved with everything. But no one ever asked me. Everyone just assumed I wanted to go on the swing.
0: spoke earlier about those like genuinely remarkable communication skills that you had verbally and you are someone who as an adult has become a person who contributes to national debates about disability and who is contributing on policy and contributing as a campaigner and has contributed as a political advisor. When you're doing that, you're sometimes called on to speak on behalf of disabled people. I wanna ask how that mm-hmm. how that feels and how you navigate that given the breadth of experience that people with disabilities have. Well I can't ever speak for disabled people. All I can ever
1: do is say that having spoken to a uh, a lot of people with disability or having heard from a lot of people with disability, this is what I'm hearing. Mm. And that's why it's really important that I keep connected to my community. And um, I keep listening. I keep reading. I keep connected. Um, The disability community is one that is really loud and connected and um, we keep communication going and I need to stay connected to people um, with different disabilities. I need to keep reading submissions that are coming in. I need to keep reading news articles about different things that are happening, but I don't represent people with disability. I represent what I'm hearing from different people groups of people with disability. Disability is one of the most complex things in life. You know, you look at the NDIS and one of the reasons why um, it is so difficult to, um, you know, navigate is because disability is so complex and there's Mm. so many different um, ways to look at it. You could. Get a, another 30-year-old woman with cerebral palsy who lives in Brisbane and sit her right next to me and we could have completely different support needs than one another. Yeah, No two disabilities are exactly the same. So that's what makes our community so incredible and so diverse and inclusive and wonderful and um you know, there's so much benefit to that. But it means no one can ever speak for our entire community.
0: We have seen uh, some extraordinary steps forward when it comes to policy and government supports around disability through the creation of the NDIS. And I know there are people in my life for whom that scheme has genuinely been life-changing. Yeah. But we know there are big cost pressures on the scheme and that there are a lot of people who are disabled, who are having trouble accessing the scheme or who are cut off from accessing the scheme. How would you like to see the NDIS change?
1: Well, can I start by reinforcing what you started by saying, which is the NDIS is transformational. It has changed my life in ways that are just extraordinary. Before I had the NDIS, I did not receive a single dollar of disability support for 27 years. I was sitting, when I got my first NDIS plan, I was sitting in a wheelchair from the Aldi special buy section. Wow! It, my feet did not touch the foot plates. I couldn't wheel myself. Um, in the three years before I got the NDIS, I was in the ICU six times. In the three years since I've gotten the NDIS, I haven't been in once. And that's because I actually have access to the specialists and doctors that I I need. Um, I couldn't work before the NDIS because I couldn't get around and I was too unwell. And you can see since the NDIS, um, you can't really stop me from working. (laughs) I'm incredibly proud disability rights activists um like it has changed people's lives in ways that it's almost so simple but so extraordinary there were people that were getting one shower a week that were getting one meal a day that now have the opportunity not just to eat three meals a day, you know, what a privilege. But actually get out of the house, choose an activity that um, means something to them, maybe work for the first time in their lives, which actually gives the people that were caring for them the opportunity to go back to work as well. This is an internationally renowned, world-leading scheme, right? The foundations of the NDIS are strong, But it's also a young scheme, like it's only been rolled out across the whole country um, for two years. Um, It took eight years to roll it out across the whole country and it's only 10 years um, old. And so, of course, it still needs like changing and evolution and reform. Um, And I think the... Conversation about cost has been so frustrating as a disabled person to listen to. Because when we talk about cost for the NDIS, we're only ever talking about one side of the balance sheet. We're only ever talking about it costs fifty billion dollars or it costs it's gonna cost a hundred billion dollars in twenty years or When we actually know for a fact that for every dollar spent on the NDIS, there is a $2.25 return to the economy, that it has created 260,000 jobs, that it is returning money to local businesses to, you know, like we don't talk about, yes, it's we are spending money, but it's actually generating economic buzz in our communities. It's the caring economy, just like childcare, just like aged care. This is actually an economy that is incredibly viable. And so I get very frustrated about the cost discussion. Where I think the NDIS needs significant reform is actually outside of the NDIS. So the NDIS was only ever supposed to support 10% of people with disability. 90% of people with disability were supposed to access more accessible mainstream services. But what happened is once the NDIS started, um, state governments in particular just walked away from disability and mainstream services have become more inaccessible and more um, difficult to access and have disappeared completely and so the NDIS you probably heard has become you know the only lifeboat in the ocean and there's no accessible services on the outside for people to access and that is putting a lot of pressure on the NDIS and it's also leaving a lot of people without any support so what we need to do Uh, You know, it doesn't matter if I have an NDIS plan, I'm still going to need to go to the hospital, I'm still going to need to go to school, I'm still going to need to go to universities. We have to make mainstream services more accessible for people with disabilities and that will take the pressure off the NDIS and make it easier to use.
0: Ellie, you got told as a, what was it, a year two student that you're an extraordinary communicator. It's definitely still true. Thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for letting me talk.
0: That's it for my conversation with Ellie Demarchelier. Isn't she extraordinary? If you want to know more about her, you can head to her website. Just put Ellie Demarchelier into your favourite search engine. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Weekend Briefing and being part of our special series. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode of The Briefing, the best thing to do is to head to the listener app now where you can follow us or you can subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not leave us a lovely rating or review? It will absolutely make my day. We'll be back with you on Monday morning, bright and early, when Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.